nature of the message this morning, I think it would be good for us to do communion at the end of the service. And I think you'll see why as we look at the scripture this morning. As we've been over several weeks talking about the church, we're discussing various avenues even of our church. We're here on the fourth letter uh, to the the churches, the seven churches written in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Remember the first church was Ephesus, that was a careless church. Nevertheless, I have this against you, you left your first love. Then we have Smyrna, this is the crushed church. Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Then Pastor Phil spoke on Pergamos last week. That's the compromising church. Uh, There are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. There are those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And now we're at Thyatira. Thyatira is the corrupt church. Verse 23 says, And all the churches shall know that I am he who examines the minds and hearts. This uh, church of Thyatira, these recipients, by the way, this is the longest letter, probably to the smallest church. As we think of these churches, remember this. It doesn't mean our church is like these churches, but the potential, whether it be good or evil, is always there as we look at these churches. Remember also, these letters are written to churches, but they're also written to individuals, even at the end of this letter. As it says there in verse 29, he who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not just an implication for the church, but there's an application here to the individual. So as, we, as, you, as you read through these and you think through these, even as you listen to the message, keep those things in mind. The church at Thyatira, the strategic location, it really was nothing strategic about it. It was, a, they had a, it was situated between the city of Sardis and Pergamos on the roads. You went from Pergamos down through, through Thyatira to Sardis. It had a Roman garrison, but the Roman garrison was there not to defend the city of Thyatira. It actually was to impede the advance of an army that was going towards Pergamos. The bottom line is Thyatira was expendable. Okay, so strategically only to slow down the advancing army to, get, to go to the capital city there in that province, which would be Pergamos. Commercial interests. Uh, this is, a, this is a, take a little time here because I want you to under, grab a hold of this, understand this, the, the implications of their commercial interests and how this false teacher fit in or played upon that idea. It was on a major trade route was known for its workers' guilds. In fact, the archaeologists and excavationists has found out they had numerous workers' guilds, which would be today our, our trade unions. Leather, pottery, slave dealers, bronze, linen, wool, and dyers. Thyatira, one of the things specifically they were known for was their dyeing of purple. Remember Lydia? Acts chapter, I believe it is 16, she was a seller of purple. She came from Thyatira. She was a believer. The underlying problem with these guilds, you know you've heard the expression there in Timothy, if you don't work, you don't eat. You had to be a member of the guild to work. You didn't really have an option. If you wanted to survive, 
Now, you might be able to get under the radar, but if you wanted to survive, you had to be part of a guild. Here's the underlying problem with being a member of the guild. Each guild had its own god or goddess. If your, if your business was, ex, was successful, you praised the god or goddess. If it wasn't successful, you prayed to the god or goddess. And this was part of being a member of the guild. Once a month or sometimes more often, they would have feasts. Their guild would have, they had their own temple, so to speak, or own gathering place. They would have, and gather, they would have a feast. And that feast usually deteriorated into drunkenness, then also immorality, and, of course, idolatry. And, and, and as we'll see, as I already read in this text, it's so similar to consistent with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, where we saw idolatry, its twin brother, immorality, was right there. Wherever you saw immorality, close by was idolatry. They, they, they went hand in hand. And the same stands true as you move into the New Testament. The two go together. They're hand in glove. They're brother and sister. They're twins. Immorality and idolatry. They eat or ate the food that had been offered to idols. They got involved in the temple worship with the temple priestesses, both their immorality and their idolatry. The point is, if you wanted to make a living, you had to become a member of a workers' guild. Let me just pause for a minute. Let's, or let's, if we see a coaching, let's take a time out. This is a good time to remember or remind ourselves that our work demands our skill, but it does not demand our soul. It is one thing to offer our profession our hard work, but we do not offer it our worship. When are you a believer? Only at church? No, you're a believer all the time. Whether at church, at work, involved in your hobby, interacting with your friends. You're a believer all the time. It's 100% and 100%. It's not 50-50. So make sure we keep that in perspective. The divine author. Well, he calls himself the son of God. This is to stress his deity. In fact, my understanding is the only time it's used in the book of Revelation where he refers to himself as the son of God. Then he, he calls himself there in verse 18 with eyes like flame of fire. Eyes like flame of flames of fire. These things say the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire. Sorry, I always wrote that wrong. Like a flame of fire. It's penetrating. It's laser-like. It's, it's a gaze into the heart of the church and the heart of the individual that discerns, it evaluates, it knows the thoughts and intents. He knows you. He knows us. There's nothing hidden to him. We may have a 
chamber effect, or we may have a silo effect, or we, we compartmentalize. He already knows that. Take down the partitions. You're not surprising him anyway. He knows. He can see. He has laser-like vision. His feet like fine brass, fire, white hot, divine judgment, purification. As you went to the temple or the tabernacle, the first thing as you walked in, you would see the brazen altar. Well, that brazen altar was made from brass, and that's where the sacrifice was burned up. That was judgment. And then you came to the brazen laver. The brazen lavers where the priest would come and wash and prepare for each sacrifice. There's purification. And there's cleansing. The fire cleanses. The water purifies. He had feet of brass to move through each church, to chasten them, to cleanse them. So he identifies himself as to stress his deity, to pierce the facade, to know their heart, to chasten and to cleanse from sin. This is who he is. And then we come to this part. The commendation of the church. This is, this is really neat. Uh, as you study through this, to see as he looks at this church, as he talks about this church, to see how positively he recommends them. This is the kind of church we would go to and visit and say, that's where we would like to go. We would like to be like that. For I know your works love, service, faith, and your patience. And by the way, as for your works, the last are more than the first. And I know your works, a working church. This is an intentionally, intentional initiative. They were willing to get their hands dirty. They were a working church. It didn't matter if it was something around the church didn't matter if it was something from the church or seeking to help someone that's in the church. They were willing to get their hands dirty. They were, they were willing to work. He says, I know your love. This is a loving church. This is, this is the word agape. This is a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 5, when Paul's talking to the church about the giving that went on, he said, you exceeded our expectations but in all these things you gave yourself first. They were a loving church. They gave themselves first. In other words, it wasn't, what can you do? They didn't come to church and say, okay, what can you do for me? They came to church and said, what can I do for you? They were a loving church. A sound church. Their faith. I believe that is a reference to their doctrine. They were sound in their faith. They were doctrinally squared away. They were a serving church. They weren't waiting. They weren't depending on leadership. They, weren't on, they were saints serving saints. And we've seen that even here. But they were saints serving saints. They weren't waiting for the pastoral leadership or leadership in the church to serve. They were saints serving saints. They were a serving church. They were a patient church. Persevering through temptation and compromise. The guilds, for instance. There were those there who were withstanding the temptation to compromise. They were a persevering church, a patient church, a growing church. And he, as he says there at the end of the verse, he said, that the last is more than the first. 
They were attempting even greater things than they had before. They were growing. They were stretching. They were becoming the kind of godly men and godly women they ought to be. I've read that the average church in America has 12 good years before it declines. Before it begins to drop off in effective outreach. Conversations to Christ, baptism, discipleship, growth, new members, new ideas, new projects, and a spirit of anticipation. The average church in America has 12 good years and then slides into spiritual apathy and oblivion. Not this church, not Thyatira. This church was at least 60 years old and it was still climbing. However, it was in grave, grave danger. We should never get to the place that we come puffed up and think, well, we've done this and we've done that. God's done this, and God's done that. We are here by the grace of God, and grace of God only. But once we start living on the past and telling stories about the past, we begin writing our last chapter. Keep looking forward. Keep growing. Personal and numerical growth. But this church was in danger. Whether the assembly themselves knew it or not. Our son, Andy, at Virginia Tech, University Campus Ministry through Baptist Missions. One of, one of the things with that type of ministry is not necessarily crucial, but really helpful if they have a house. They're able to entertain students and have them over to the house, not only fellowship for Bible studies. Since early spring, they've been looking to try to find a house to relocate there in Blacksburg, Virginia. If you've been involved in house hunting, it's almost you really have to do it to find out what you don't want. And that's kind of what happened. It, this yard was too small. It was actually some places you, there was no off-street parking. It was difficult to, you know, it was difficult to entertain or those type of things. Well, they finally found a house. And it really looked good on paper. It's over 2,600 square feet. It's got four bedrooms. They have four children. Uh, it has a, one of the master suites downstairs so the grandparents can come and visit. A living room upstairs, a, a family room downstairs, both areas nice for, for entertaining. It has an uh, upper deck and a lower deck, attached garage. Uh, just It really has a, a really nice kitchen, which Davina's a just very good cook. It's just really, on paper, looked great. So they went and looked at it. It was awesome. It was exactly what they're looking for. Well then, so they made their bid and they got the house and they dickered back and forth and got it for what they could afford. And then they had to do the home inspection. This is awful. Everything was great until they got to the attic. And they got to the attic, and the guy leading the inspection, he starts looking around the attic, and there's snake skins all over the attic. 
And Andy said to him, he said, well, if there's snakeskin, shouldn't there be like snake holes so you can see it through the insulation stuff? And sure enough, they flashed the flashlight around, and sure enough, there's snake holes. On paper and outside, just like the church of Thyatira, everything looks really, really good. But when you got on the inside, when the laser-like vision of Christ starts to look at the hearts and the minds of the people and what's going on in that church, there's a lot of snakes there. So, condemnation. First of all, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. The proclamation, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. David Jeremiah writes, Nevertheless acts as a transition from approval to disapproval. Thyatira had everything but holiness. The church had it together except one thing, holiness. Often you've heard me pray for our church. I've prayed this for the, since the time I've been here that God would keep a protection of holiness around about this ministry. And indeed he has. But in the last few years I've come to this conclusion. It's, it's nice to talk about his hedge of holiness around about this ministry, but also we need to have his holiness within this ministry. We need to have this holiness within our own lives. I'm thankful for God's hand of protection, that hedge of holiness. But we need internal holiness also. That was missing. The prophetess, of course, Jezebel. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, allow means to tolerate. In other words, you make allowance, you make exceptions for her. Now, it's been over a thousand years since Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, lived and moved with influence in Israel. But the spirit that empowers her, this person, resides in this woman who, figuratively speaking, he calls Jezebel. Now listen, it just so happens in this text it identifies it as a woman. The spirit of Jezebel can just as easily be in a man. The spirit of Jezebel. Moffat translates it this way. That Jezebel, that Jezebel of a woman. In 1 Kings chapter 16, Jezebel Bell is the wife of Ahab, who happens to be the king of Israel. She was an idolater. He never, he had no business ever marrying her. It was probably for an alliance of some sort. She brought her gods into the palace, specifically Baal. Baal was the fertility god, of course. Idolatry and morality was the fertility god. supposedly springtime and harvest. But it also became an excuse for immoral and sensual perversion in the temple, the temple priestesses. She had a great deal of influence over King Ahab and the perversion of religion, turning people away from God to gods and goddesses. Then we go to 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'm leaving out a lot of the story. You can read it yourself. But 1 Kings chapter 18, God judged Jezebel's prophets when Elijah summoned them to a contest of fire. 
he brought them to a mountaintop, and he challenged them and said, you build your altar to Baal, you lay your sacrifice on it, and you call down fire from Baal to lick up the sacrifice. They said, sure. So they built their altar. They prayed all day. And Elijah began to mock them. He says, hey, uh, maybe you need to yell a little bit louder. He might be asleep. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's not checking his messages. They cut themselves, which was part of their worship to bleed. They cried louder, and nothing happened. Then Elijah built the altar to God. He actually had to rebuild it. It was apparently a place that was often a place of worship and making an altar to God. He took 12 stones, representing each one of the tribes. He placed the sacrifice on the altar. He dug a trench around the altar. 12 water pots is how much it could hold. And I tried to find out what that meant. It's any place from 5 gallons to 20 gallons depending on how you measure the water pot. I tend to think it's probably the greater than the lesser. He drenched that stones, he drenched that wood, he drenched that sacrifice to the point that there was water standing in the trench that was around the altar. And then he prayed, Lord, let it be known today who you are in Israel. I am your servant. And of course, if you know the story, fire fell from heaven and apparently licked up the whole sacrifice. There was nothing left. Then 450 prophets of Baal were put to death that day. That began the end, so to speak, of Jezebel's influence, but not completely. She swore that the things that were done to the prophets of Baal would happen, the very same thing to Elijah. To, again, to emphasize the influence she had in, you know, over the king, Elijah, when he heard that message, he ran for his life. He was afraid of her. And then in six, Second Kings chapter 19, eventually Jezebel was executed by the order of the prophet Jehu. She was pushed or thrown out of a window by her servants. And it says basically she broke into many pieces and the dog licked up her blood. That's the spirit of Jezebel. She was a wicked, evil person. She was a false teacher. She perverted the message of God at every chance, every bend, every possible turn in the road. That's Jezebel. The problem. Seduction. To seduce intentionally deceive my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jezebel was intentionally deceiving God's people by combining worship with immorality, business with idolatry. What she basically was saying was this. Hey, God has created in you a desire to work, and you're the best leather tanner in the city. Join the guild. Business is business. God is God. Business is business. Church is church.
and may the two never meet. It's okay. When you think of the Jezebel's doctrine, she taught that something evil can be good. Just think about that. Something evil can be good. Homosexual marriages are okay as long as they are based on love. Seeking after material possessions is okay as this is a sign of God's blessing. Doing away with the Bible is okay as long as you are in communion with God and rely on his spirit for revelation. All these are evil, but they seem to be good. She taught that something evil can be good. Part of Jezebel's doctrine was to hate God's word or hate the truth of God's word. Jezebel hated Elijah, tried to destroy all the true prophets who faithfully spoke of God's word. Christians who are bound by Jezebel's doctrine similarly have a regard, have no regard for God's word. They'd rather experience God than study his word. They would rather worship God or fellowship with other believers than to sit under biblical teaching. Ahab said about Micaiah, God's faithful prophet, I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. Jezebel prophets, on the other hand, prophesied only good things, peace, prosperity. They never prophesied judgment. It was unbalanced. It was unbiblical. It was wrong. See, the doctrine of Jezebel, something evil can be good, and the doctrine of Jezebel hates God's word. The third thing about Jezebel's doctrine It deludes people completely into thinking that they are right. Let me put it another way. If I give you long enough, or you give me long enough, I'm going to be able to justify my sin. I'm going to find a way to justify why I do what I do. That's part of Jezebel's doctrine. Delude us, to seduce us, to deceive us, to justify our sin. A man by the name of Jim Drakes writes, according to the Christian pollster George Barna in 2003, this is over 10 years ago, now that's, that's significant as you listen to these statistics. According to the Christian pollster George Barna in 2003, six out of 10 Americans believed that it was morally acceptable to live together instead of getting married. The same number of people agree with actively engaging in sensual fantasies. Nearly half of Americans believe it's okay to have sex with someone you're not married to. Around four out of every ten Americans see nothing wrong with viewing pornography. And nearly a third see nothing wrong with homosexual sex. It's no wonder that our society is in the condition it's in. It's no wonder our families are so messed up. But in a way, even though it's heartbreaking, and yes, it is disturbing, it's easy to understand because the world is full of lost people and lost people are going to act like lost people. Correct? But here's the rub. Here's what's really disturbing. Barna's statistics show very little difference between people who call themselves Christians and those who don't. In other words, these same sensual sins are nearly as much in the church as they are in the world. 
Statistically, among people who identify themselves as born-again Christians, nearly four out of ten think it's okay to live together without the benefit of marriage. The same 40% think actively engaged in sensual fantasies is morally acceptable behavior. Just as many or more people in the church are viewing pornography as those outside the church. According to his research, Barna indicated that more people in our churches today think it's a sin to break the speed limit than people think it's sin to break the seventh commandment. This is the kind of influence this Jezebel's doctrine has even in the church to the point where we can justify any sin. It could be gossip. It could be backbiting. Not just sexual immorality. You'll find a way. That's Jezebel's doctrine. It's seductive. It's far-reaching. It excuses. And, of course, compromises. I love this. The proposal. God never leaves us in our sin and sinful behavior. He always provides an opportunity to repent. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Looking up in Merrimack Dictionary, I thought it was interesting. They said, repent is regret and sorrow. That's awful. To repent is not regret and sorrow, like, I'm sorry I got caught. It's, oops, you caught me now. Repentance, biblical repentance, is a change of mind. It's a change of direction. You may be sorrowful for your sin. You may be sorry for your sin. You may be sorry you got caught for your sin. But to repent means to change directions. To repent means a change of mind. When Elijah was challenging the people before he prayed to God about the sacrifice he was offering to ask God to send fire, he said, how long do you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then worship him. How long before you falter between two opinions? Repent. If the Lord is God, then let's worship him. With our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, our strength. Let's not hold anything back. The proposal is to repent. The person who is teaching heresy and the person who is tolerating heresy. Repent. That's the proposal. The prognosis, this is sad. Sad ending. Opportunity to repent. I still remember, I may have told the story before, of a man sitting in my office deep into sensual perversion. And he looked at me and said, Pastor Ken, what would you do if you were me? And I said to him, I said, I would get down on my knees and repent. And he sat there with tears running down his eyes, unmoved other than the tears. He did not repent. It was a sad ending to his story. The prognosis is suffering and death. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. This is not the great tribulation recorded later in Revelation. This has to do with suffering. This has to do with pressure. Unless they repent of their deeds. Verse 23, I will kill her children. We have suffering. We now we have death. Those followers, those disciples of her doctrine, 
And all the church shall know that I am he who searches the hearts, who searches the mind. I will give to each one according to their work. Not works salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. But the, word not, and, but the works that are evidence of salvation. Let me just share with you. If we as a church, if we as individuals refuse to deal with sin, these are the dangers that we may encounter. We'll encourage the deception of sin in the sinner's mind. For us to fail to deal with sin in a sinner's heart and mind. Whether it be saints ministering to saints. Whether it be not coming as holier than thou, but you recognize a sin that they have in their life and you're confronting them with it. To leave it unconfronted, to leave it as it is, is to deceive that person in their own mind that it's okay for them to live the way they're living. We'll provide a captive audience for false teaching. In this case, the situation was there's nothing wrong with this individual. She was allowed to continue teaching. She may have been a wealthy woman. She may have been a person of influence in the city. But for some reason, she had a hearing. Provide a captive audience. Why would we want to place somebody under a false teacher? Would you do that? Would you want your child to sit under a false teacher? Someone who mocked and, and made fun of the scripture and the word of God? will give undue influence to an unrepentant sinner. To delude the sinner that there's no consequences for sinful choices. To experience God's judgment. In other words, we as a church or we as an individual may also experience God's judgment because we refuse to deal with the sin either in our own lives or in our midst. What, it's, such a, it's such a great responsibility. In our small groups Bible study now, next, next week we'll be in 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 5 deals with discipline of immorality within the church. Am I saying that there's an issue here in our church? Not that I know of. Am I saying the potential is there? It's always there. It's always lurking. Satan is always looking for a foothold. He always wants to get a hold of us. And many times it begins in our fantasies. He plays upon our mind. The challenge to the church, verse 24 and 25, or actually 20, 22 and 24 and 25. First of all, repent. Change of mind, direction. Confess, forsake, replace. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper. I can guarantee that you will not prosper. And I'm not talking about financial prosper. Prosperity here has to do with actually being able to bring it to a conclusion. Something will interrupt your life. But whoever confesses, okay, yes, important, that's part of repentance, and forsakes, Their sin will have mercy. You confess, you forsake, and I would add that you need to replace. 
Because something could come into that void that you don't want there. What are you going to replace it with? Repent. So the challenge to these believers here at this church, if indeed they are examining their hearts as the laser light of God examines their heart, if they take down the partitions and the barriers and the, and the walls of their sinful behavior and they begin to examine their light, their life in the light of God's word, they will want to repent. They can't wait to repent. But secondly, he says, hold fast. Apparently there were a remnant of believers here at Thyatira in that church who were repentant. And he challenges us, says, hold fast, be discerning, be faithful, be obedient. Don't give up. Yeah, the world's awful, isn't it? But what's your relationship with God? Are you walking in obedience to the word of God? Are you submitting yourself to the will of God? Are you under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit? Is there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Hold fast. Don't stop. Don't compromise. Don't give up. In conclusion, he says, or let me just suggest this. In conclusion to the message, big sins can happen in little churches. Sin is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor or you're just an attender. Sin is no respecter of persons. Age, gender, new or old Christian, person of means, or person that is not a means. Sin can happen in little churches. The second thing is, one person's sin can destroy the effectiveness of an entire church. Just think of it this way. Our church, Faith Bible Church, is only as strong as its weakest member. No one sins in a vacuum. Your sin is going to affect others. It may even influence others. Dishonest, gossip, a hypocrite, marked by sensuality, or integrity, purity, humility, fruit of the Spirit, Holy Spirit control. You do have influence. Your circle of influence may be small and may be big, but one person's sin can destroy the effectiveness of any ministry and even an entire church. Just think about it. Twelve years. Twelve years. The average church size in America is 70. The average church length of ministry before it declines, 12. The question is not to see where's Faith Bible Church, but the question is where are you? Repent and hold fast. That's why I wanted to do communion last. As we come to the table, 
we practice here at Faith Bible Church what we call open communion. We ask this question. Are you saved? If you are saved, are you walking in obedience to the Word of God? So if you are saved and you are walking in obedience to the Word of God, we encourage you to participate. But even as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, before you participate, let each man examine themselves. Take the laser-like eyes of Christ. Shine that light in your heart, in your mind, to see if there's anything there that hinders your relationship with God or possibly even hindering your relationship with others. Repent. Prepare yourself that you could participate. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, in an unrepentant heart, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We do not enter lightly into participation of the Lord's table here. And in light of the message, it is even more important, I think, than ever that we prepare ourselves personally this does not give salvation. This is a celebration of the life, of the, the birth, or the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a celebration that what he did for us on the cross, that we can have grace freely, his mercy extended to us. And as we as believers enter into this celebration, we need to prepare ourselves for that participation. Let's take a few moments at this time for you, bow your heads, search your hearts, in anticipation and preparation for the Lord's Supper.